0: Hello and welcome to Play On, the Morgan Sports Law podcast. I'm Ben Cisneros, a trainee solicitor at Morgan Sports Law, and today I'm delighted to be joined by two special guests, Amanda Bennett and Dan Leo. Amanda is a sports governance expert and the founding director of Fair Play Limited, which works with sports organisations to enhance their good governance and effective leadership practices. She was also Wales's first female fly half and first female head coach and was the founder, a former player and now chair of of Saracens Women. Amanda is also a member of the England Rugby Diversity and Inclusion Working Group, and we're delighted that she's here with us today. Those of you who've listened to the Play On podcast for a while will be familiar with our second guest, who is the CEO of Morgan Sports Law client Pacific Rugby Players Welfare, Dan Leo. Dan is a former Samoa international rugby player who also played for clubs including London Wasps, Perpignan and London Irish during his career. Dan set up PRPW in 2016, and the organisation has since gone from strength to strength, publishing its Oceans Apart documentary last year and continuing to support its over 600 members. Dan, welcome back. In this episode, we'll be revisiting World Rugby's governance. I say revisiting because this was a topic we discussed just over a year ago on episode 6, when we were joined by Dan and Australia international Matt Tamua. During that episode, we discussed the then-ongoing World Rugby Governance Review and the Vilomani report, which PRPW had submitted to the review's chair, which highlighted some of the governance issues of greatest importance for the Pacific Islands and their players. A year or so on, we thought it would be worth revisiting the issues to assess how World Rugby's governance review had gone and to look at some of the biggest developments of the past 12 months. The governance review, announced in June 2020, was undertaken by a working group led by the British Olympic Association's Sir Hugh Robertson. In May 2021, the working group made four recommendations, in addition to its earlier interim recommendations, which were all adopted by the Council. These were transformational restructuring of key areas of world rugby's governance, a new union classification system to replace the closed tier structure, the enhancement of World Rugby committee structures to increase diversity, as well as player and independent representation, And a new integrity code to be adopted, including a robust fit and proper persons test. However, outside of the governance review per se, there have been a number of other significant reforms. For example, last month it was announced that the World Rugby Council would be voting on the further proposal to make changes to the game's international eligibility rules, following a pledge by World Rugby chairman Bill Beaumont when he was re elected in 2020. This is something that Dan Leo and PRPW have been advocating for years. The vote took place last week, and to the surprise of many, it passed. From 2022, players will now be able to switch international allegiance once in their careers to another country with which they have a credible link by birth, parentage or grandparentage after serving a three-year standout period. This change is of particular significance for the Pacific Islands, and according to many, has the potential to revolutionise the sport. And Dan, I've got to come to you first on this one. What's your reaction to to that news?
1: Oh, to be honest, Ben, I still have to pinch myself every five minutes just to make sure that I'm not dreaming. Something that uh, you know, with as specific rugby players' welfare, we've been pushing for a long, long time. Obviously, you've been you and Morgan uh, Sports have been a big part of um, the, you know driving this this positive positive change, and it's yeah just fantastic. I think it'll be fantastic for the game and just yeah long long overdue.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Amanda, have you got any thoughts on this change?
2: Yeah, I think so. It's clear there's been a lot of work behind the scenes here, um, lobbying, advocacy, lots of evidence base around the benefits it'll it'll bring to the gold global game. And this isn't it, it just for men's rugby, and isn't just about Pacific Islanders because it will apply across the game as a whole. And even more recently, particularly with the women's uh, rugby slant on it, we, we think about Flo Williams. who got her first cap for Wales a couple of weeks ago, and yet she played England under twenties. But actually, she's had to wait eight years, to be able to get that opportunity. And so she's, she's relatively old. She's 27, so she's a baby as far as I'm concerned, but she's relatively old to get that first cap. But equally, I mean, one of the points that was made about the, the change of the ruling is the way in which it, it might also encourage unions to develop talent systems, domestic game competitions that encourage people not to have to go through that process, not to have to leave or rely on second or third generation Uh, in order to come back and play for their country. So Megan Jones is Welsh. She's a Welsh rugby player. However, she went to play for a Premier 15s team, was identified very quickly, moved through the under-20s, has played for England and England 7s. Now, under this ruling, at a future point, should she ever wish to, she could go and play for Wales in the future. Phenomenal, a world-class player, potentially lost to the Welsh system because it was simply not strong enough to enable her to progress as a player. So she had to go to another union to find that talent pathway and that development opportunity. So there there are two aspects to this, one one of which is the the longer term ability of players to to play for more than one union, potentially if they've been brought up in one of the tier one nations competition structures, but equally, you know, the encouragement for, for nations more widely to develop those competition structures to retain their talent in the first place.
0: And Dan, just coming back to you, I know that you've spoken a lot about the way in which this ruling could revolutionise the game on and off the pitch in the Pacific. So could you talk to us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, I suppose for me, the really exciting aspect is it'll allow uh, some of those funds that we know rugby drives around the world and we see it all the time um, to be channelled back into the Pacific. Um, as Amanda touched on, To you know, for us to be able to reinvest back into grassroots so that uh, Hopefully, you know, in, you know in, a, in a few cycles of, you know, it'll mean that we don't have to bring back, uh, you know, retired All Blacks, you know, to, 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 to do that. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a short term uh, fix to a long term uh, problem, I guess, you know, in terms of the money's got to come from somewhere. Um, for us to, you know, to really com- compete and to, you know, to get our pathways to the standard where we can compete with the tier one nations, otherwise it's just going to always be one, you know, one way traffic, in terms of the talent, the talent drain going out of the Pacific, and uh, um, this is a one of the, the ways, you know, and um, that we can, you know, having having some of the, the high quality and you know our, our star players coming back, you know, will we'll open up opportunities for sponsorship, you know, hopefully for higher quality test matches revenue around broadcast um, you know maybe to the point where we can even negotiate a fee when we play away because I know something we touched on in the last pod was you know the fact that there, there is no profit share model you know when Tonga came to Tokenham uh, last month they they leave with, with nothing that's you know because our, 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 our national, national sides have no um, brand power you know we're not the All Blacks we're not the Springboks but that can, you know, we can. This this gives us an opportunity um, to start building that, you know, so that we are in a more powerful position to actually, um, hopefully, negotiate some some deals down the future. So yeah, again, it's not about, you know, just about bringing back star players for the next World Cup. That's exciting and it'll be great. But it's more important that we ask ourselves what happens after Rugby World Cup in twenty twenty three. How is this going to positively impact, um, you know, not just the Pacificans but the, you know, tier two and three nations uh, long term
0: absolutely i' couldn't, couldn't agree more and i mean i mean for me i think it's it's really a potential game changer for the international game and potentially the sport the sport as a whole, like you say, the potential long term benefits of getting more pride and also commercial power into these jerseys into these tier two jerseys is, is potentially hugely significant you know it can generate funds that can be reinvested into the to the grassroots game in in those traditionally tier two nations. And there's also the point that, you know, some people are saying, well, doesn't this sort of undermine the integrity of the international game? But actually, in many ways, this sort of restores pride in in those jerseys. And that in itself will, will go a long way to, to improving the situation of these, of these nations in the future. So m- moving things on slightly, that was obviously the most recent development in terms of World Rugby's governance. But there has been a review process going on throughout the year. And so I'd like to just touch on that governance review process, if I may. And and Amanda, perhaps I'll come come to you first. What do you make of the process that's been followed over the past 12, 18 months by World Rugby?
2: I think the, the fact that it's been 12, 18 months is is an indication that there was a commitment that it would be a thorough review, wouldn't be a short, sharp decision taken by council, driven by the executive board. Uh, and, and we've seen Sadly, where where we may get short-term decisions or what appear to be short-term decisions, just look at modern pentathlon at the moment and the the struggles they're having around the decisions they've taken around riding, um, and they haven't taken the sport with them. So I think what World Rugby has tried to do here is take the sport with the review process to engage the sport and external stakeholders. I mean, let's be honest. So Hugh Robertson is a former sports minister. Uh, When I was working at UK Sport, he was sports minister, and he was very clear then. He was advocating for greater diversity in decision making he was advocating for uh, integrity and independence so when he was appointed to lead this process world Rugby were already familiar with his perspectives on good governance and and, and I, but i firmly believe this is not so Hugh pushing through any kind of agenda this is about engaging the sport talking to the sport and looking at looking at the long-term future and we, we know what good governance models look like. We know what good decision-making looks like. And Rugby has has taken quite radical steps. The expansion of council, for example, a couple of years ago, radical step. No, it's an enormous council. We recognise that. But over time, we'd expect to see that being, being streamed back. That's that's the ideal. But we still have a, you know an executive board to make decisions. But with the subcommittees and so on and so forth, I think I'm delighted to see that the game at large has approved recommendations that will bring in what is perceived as best practice in governance structures and decision-making. And let's be quite honest here, this is not prevalent throughout other international federations. So I think it's taking the game with them. That's what's proved most impactful, I think, when we come to the recommendations.
1: And Dan, what about you? Totally um, echo what Amanda was saying there. I think, um, you know, it's... A great start, you know, and, and I think um, a lot of the, the the changes that have been recommended, are, you know, will, will again take the you know to sports to the next level, and it's uh, you know about the um, the transparency around that that whole process. I think that's that's been key for me, uh, the way that uh, World Rugby have actually. Um, Admitted in some of the areas that they need to, you know, probably probably grow in, and another, you know, also looking at the areas we do this well, but we just want to do, we need to do it better. Um, I think that's the collaborative approach that is needed to take the sport, you know, from from A to B. Um, and the diversity is great, you know, not just in terms of you know cultural representation, but uh, male male female. You know, seen massively seen the female representation on the board diversify, and um, yeah, it's um, it's for me, it's uh, all, all steps in the right direction.
0: Yeah, I'd certainly echo those thoughts about the sort of positive steps forward. I think it also it's been it's been very welcome the way that they've taken a very consultative approach, engaged a large number of stakeholders in the process. I suppose if I was to be slightly more critical, areas that I'm perhaps more disappointed by are the fact that it wasn't a purely independent review. I think there's, there would be a, a good deal to be gained from having a sort of external objective assessment of their governance rather than it being independent led, but rather... Uh, sort of mostly in house, uh, you know. I think that uh, we discussed that on our previous podcast about the review. That, that that leaves something to be desired. Although I appreciate that, you know, having someone like Sir Hugh Robinson at the head of the review has obviously been very important. And I suppose the, the other thing, from my perspective, is that the findings of the re- review haven't been published in full. We've sort of had these press statements about the recommendations that have been made, but we haven't seen the full report or 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 the full findings of the working group on on world rugby's governance and i suppose that that lack of detail is is slightly frustrating but perhaps that's that's just me coming from a a more legal perspective so turning to sort of reviews generally and amanda this is something you know you've been involved in a lot why is it important for sports federations to conduct reviews of their governance
2: one of the quotes that I quite like because it has an athletic inference, but it applies to anybody really. So the idea is that even if you're on the right track, if you stand still, you'll get run over. No, ask any athlete. Ask any athlete. When you, Once you think you've made it you, and you stop, then you're going backwards. So but any organization, this notion that you can create change, install people in decision making, put structures in place, make decisions, and then sigh with relief that you've done it. That you're immediately in trouble. So um, good governance is a continuous process. And so one of the reasons for that is because the world at large changes. <laughs> Let's face it, we've had COVID as an example of the things that might might change radically, uh, crises, but equally opportunities. So we know that, and I'm going to talk a lot about women's rugby and women's sport generally, we know that women's sport commercially is going to be worth about £1 billion in the UK by 2030. So you know, as as an organisation, do you have the skills? Do you have the insight? Do you have the people within your organisation to capitalise on those opportunities? Do you have the structures to enable agile decision making? Now, in many countries, sports organisations that receive public funds have to go through evaluations, they have to go through governance reviews, they are measured on their governance systems and processes, and they may or may not receive funding on the outcomes of those reviews. So, I mean, what we can't do, we can't ask international federations necessarily to go through lengthy, independent reviews on an annual basis. But it's certainly reasonable for any international federation, including World Rugby and national federations, to undertake annual reviews of their own systems and processes and people. So everything from skills audits and board evaluations. So how are we doing? How well are we performing? Because let's face it, you know, we're responsible for athletes and coaches and officials. And our expectation is that they have a commitment to continuous improvement. So is it not reasonable that athletes, coaches and officials should look at our senior decision making saying, what are you doing about continuous development? What are you doing about continuous learning? How are you measuring your performance? So with those expectations in mind, I would advocate for continuous review. And then at a given point, every three or four years, an independent or an external review where somebody with expertise and insight can come into the organisation and say well let's see where your strengths are let's see what you're doing well and let's see where we can improve.
0: I think that's a really really great way to look at it and and framing it through the perspective of sport is obviously something that hopefully those organisations can understand as as well as our our listeners. Dan one one of the things you will have been particularly interested in I'm sure in the review is the fact that it was recommended that the traditional tier system that, that world Rugby has adopted for the structure of international rugby is going to be reorganized, moving to a sort of performance-based model. How do you view that development?
1: Yeah, that, that's an interesting one, Ben. I think I've just got so used to banding around the uh, you know, tier two, tier one, tier three nation, it's gonna be hard to to get to, to get that out, you know, and break that mindset. But um, I think that's what it is. It's a mindset and probably it's got some negative com- connotations now in terms of you know um the world progress being you know a lot more progressive and um i'd like to think it's hope it's not a just a, a box ticking exercise that it's exactly the same structure just renamed um i think there's an opportunity here i've always questioned what the tiers are there for in the first place because in my my in my mind you know if, there, if you've got a tier system it should be there for you know for a purpose to actually help the tier three nations up, so there some, should be some sort of benefit. So, all of this is encompassed, and you know, and what, what they, ho- I hope that they're going to review. You know, just the, the purposes of not just you know the, the tier structure, but and the renaming, but what's actually behind that? I think really needs to be given some uh, consideration. And you know, if there is, if they are going to break down nations into certain, because you know, you don't have tiers in uh, in, in, in football, for instance. You know, you don't say, you don't hear. England, you know, playing against Egypt and they don't say it's a tier one versus a tier two or three. It's just everybody's on an equal equal pass. So automatically, I, I think it's uh, the old, you know, using that word, the tiers or whatever they decide to, re, you know, to rename automatically, um, I hate to bandy the words around, but, you know, um, it, it's, it's it's an old school model. And I, I'd, I'd like to, to, see, to see them abolished, the, the, you know, everyone should, but, you know, we're all rugby playing nations at the end of the day and that's what i think we should be you know we should be recognized as so yeah it'll be really interesting to see you know to you know obviously if it's just a rebranding exercise, or if there's more emphasis into what they actually want to do with the tiers, you know are they going to you know want to, going to break the team that you know the nation's down to give them a step up or you know um so yeah um i think hopefully we'll we'll, we'll learn a bit more about that as the as the process evolves
0: yeah so 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 the categories that they're going to be modelling this on as i understand our high performance performance development growth and membership so i would imagine that there is going to be some sort of targeted investment program around those categories and that certain performance on field programs might be directed at certain unions off field programs directed at others etc or with the aim of hopefully bringing bring them up bringing them up like you say but but i suppose the lack of detail around that at the moment is is slightly disappointing it was Announced, I think in May this year, with sort of details shortly to follow, and we haven't really heard anything more. So, I think in theory, like you said, Dan, it it, it sounds good, but I think you know the the devil's in the detail as ever, uh, and I suppose we're still waiting to see what that's going to be. And I think we would hope that it will be positive, but but really we have to we have to wait and see. One thing that did did catch my eye though in, in that recommendation was that those unions that are classified as high performance who don't have the, the maximum three votes on the World Rugby Council, which is sort of given really to the, to, to the main unions, if you like, they will be eligible for an additional vote. So if, if, for example, a country like Fiji was to be classed as a high-performance union, given its, its world ranking, for example, it would be eligible for an extra vote, meaning it would then have two votes as opposed to one. Japan might be bumped up to three votes as opposed to two. I'm sure that voting model might be something we touch on a little bit later on. It certainly was something we discussed in our last podcast because it's far from perfect. But I think if if the the, the new classification system can be designed in such a way that allows those unions that have made progress to get that additional vote, it will be a real carrot for, for for those nations that are sort of in in the development process still. But like I say, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. Amanda, you're, you're nodding. Was there something you wanted to add to that?
2: Yeah. I think this is fascinating and I think Dan's absolutely right in that if you look at other international federations this is something of an anomaly in terms of a tiered system and thereafter based on that tiered system the way power is allocated so it's it's not just a tier system it's a power system and I think uh, what we've now found ourselves in that it's because the game has evolved particularly since Olympic recognition the game has evolved and grown in so many different ways that it, it seems somewhat anomalous. And, and I say it, it probably is a reflection of power and the ability to make decisions, but there's a certain number of votes, rather than necessary performance and growth and growth opportunities. So, again, looking forwards rather than looking back. So I, I'm particularly interested to see how these five categories, uh, we'll talk about models and categories. I mean, at some point, there's going to have to be a measurement tool developed to to better understand how each union is putting these things in place. And I fully support the idea of incentivizing unions in these areas. What's the fastest growing area of the game at the moment? Women's rugby. More than 60% growth in six years. You know, one in four players is now female globally. I mean, if you said to a retailer or a bank or a manufacturer, "Here's, here's your latent market, here's your opportunity to make a lot of money, they'd bite your hand off. So for world rugby, a reshaping of the power structures based on things such as growth and development could have huge implication for those nations where they recognise the value of the get of the women's game and be incentivized by World Rugby to do that. And let's not forget we've got fifteens and sevens here and we've got men's rankings and women's rankings. So, how is all of that going to be folded into a model that can be accurately measured to a point where investment, even competition structures and so on and so forth might be influenced? So the cynic in me is saying there's probably quite a lot of horse trading going on right now, but um, you know I could be horribly wrong
0: yeah certainly it seems there's a lot we don 't know about about that recommendation, and hopefully we, we will learn more soon but but another part of the the review that we perhaps don't know as much as we'd like to know about is the new integrity code because that that was a key feature of the the review process as far as I'm concerned. And it was something that, Dan, we put in our in our report, in our submissions to the review, the Vilo Money Report that PRPW submitted in 2020 was that there needs to be a new ethics code for World Rugby because their existing regulations w- were deficient in that regard when compared to, compared to other major federations and the IOC Code of Ethics. So it's positive to see that there's been a new code adopted or, or, or approved, but we're yet to see that code. It's not been published, which again is disappointing given that the review or the recommendation was announced in in May this year. Um we were told that it would be published shortly, but still still no sign of it unfortunately. Uh, I'm sure that it's sort of going through various steps of approval and and, and editing perhaps before it gets published. But I I, I think it was the impression was given that, that that stage had already had already happened when it when it was announced. So perhaps something that we will have to wait and see for again. Amanda, have you got any thoughts on, on, on the sort of integrity code angle?
2: Absolutely. I think it's a must have. And I think uh, integrity codes, codes of conduct, anything that's written into a role description, and even the constant reinforcement around values, behaviours, conduct, expectations. I call it the for the avoidance of doubt system so that nobody at any time can fall foul of rules, regulations and expectations around integrity without doing so intentionally. So we don't have unintentional breaches because people are told over and over again, before you come into this position, this is what it's going to involve. These are where the the tripwires are. Let's be clear, you really can and cannot do these things. So a code is the starting point for the game. And then, as you say, when we've seen the detail, have a better understanding what that means for individuals, because we're talking here you know, the game leadership is predominantly what I call unpaid professionals. I'm not a fan of the phrase, just a volunteer. It undermines what the volunteering workforce does. And uh, it can on occasions be a license to get things wrong, because I'm just a volunteer. And that's not acceptable. When you're stepping into a senior role, people have expectations of you in terms of how you contribute and how you conduct yourself. So it's it's a must-have right from the start, but you're right. The, the devil is in the detail. When we have an, an elected or, again, don't particularly like the term representative game leadership, that can lead to conflicts of loyalty, even if it doesn't lead to conflicts of interest. So I've been to see how those are managed through the electoral process.
0: Yeah, and I know, Dan, those conflicts of interest and potential vetting procedures, which, as we've been told, going to be a part of the new integrity code, that was something that I think, you were particularly interested in when it came to sort of what that might include so have you got any further thoughts on that
1: yeah i think for me that's that's that was a key uh pick up out of everything was a fit and proper person's test um you know for a long time um you know sort of, you know we've struggled with uh, having the right people in place to be able to really uh Harness some of the other, you know, the, the good things are happening in rugby, such as the, uh, you know, these changes to the eligibility laws to actually be able to channel and capitalize on, on these things. So, um, yeah, whereas Amanda, um, you know, touched on a lot of the uh, the impacts of good governance, um, saying um, I've seen, you know, from the opposite side, so when you get things wrong, things can get messy, not just on performance, you know, that's the most visible probably part of it because, you know, the players and the teams are in the limelight, but, you know, it, the knock on effect that that can have on, you know, on the Pacific Islands are a good uh, example of this, uh, you know, the rest of the country, you know, the mood in the nation, particularly when high-level uh, politicians are involved. I, I think it's a really great step that World Rugby have taken, as you say, you know, and we've all said, but the, the devil will be in the detail. But I'd really like to see, you know, you know, and it's not always possible for there to be a separation between politics and sports, I understand that, particularly in the the Pacific Islands where, you know, Tonga is a country of 100,000 people. So, you know, you get some people up at the top there that have got three or four positions, you know, they're Minister of Finance, Minister of of Sport and uh, everything else, and probably running a shop on the side, you know. So I appreciate that's difficult. But, um, you know, within that that structure, you know, there needs to to be some sort of vetting process to make sure that the right people are doing those jobs for, for the right reasons.
0: Certainly an important time for this code to come in, g- given the discussion we had about the eligibility rules and how that might benefit the Pacific commercially to have these robust processes in place to ensure that the right people are in the right roles is, yeah, as you say, very important. Something else that's obviously very important is diversity uh, and player representation. And this is something that the review touched on in, in quite a bit, see, sort of following inter- uh, recommendations that, that committees improve their diversity and have more player representation. Amanda, if I could come to you first with that, how, how important do you think that is? And do you think these interim recommendations and final recommendations go far enough?
2: I would say it's critically important. I think we we only need to look beyond sports to see where businesses, corporations, even charities, diverse boards perform better than homogenous boards. Organisations with diverse boards perform Better than organisations that have homogenous sports, full stop. Your business will be run better, whether it's national or global. And, and whilst we recognise every business has a bottom line, I talked about retailers, manufacturers, and banks earlier, their bottom line is predominantly in the sort of we'd call the pounds and pence or the dollars, or the euros. Now, for world rugby, the bottom line is about people, it's about players, it's about coaches officials uh, about leadership development about you know growing the game at large now it doesn't really matter what your bottom line is if you lack diversity within your leadership teams i'm looking here at council executive committee etc etc then you're probably going to be risk-blind and you are potentially going to fall foul of groupthink you'll miss opportunities, you'll miss risks. I'm talking, and I'm not just talking in theoretical terms, I can point you to any number of examples, sporting and non-sporting, where a lack of diversity in leadership has meant the organisation just doesn't function as well as it could. So by increasing diversity, not just in terms of gender or protected characteristics, cultural, ethnic, disability, and so on, but it's also by uh, diversity, diversity of experience, diversity of thought, and I think what we what we want to try and move away from, and I know this may not be popular, is this notion that you have to serve in a sport for 30 years in order to be able to contribute to that decision-making process. We would want to see leadership of world rugby that is based on, yes, some experience, insight of what the game looks like out there, but also skills and expertise. And it is possible to have skills and expertise and not serve for 30 years. So uh, I mean no disrespect. I've been serving in rugby as a volunteer for 38 years. I know, I don't look old enough. But the fact is that doesn't that 38 years don't make me a good leader. It's what I've done with that time. It's the knowledge that I've accrued. Yes, some of the experience I've gained, but it's my commitment to developing skills that's enabled me to contribute to various boards and committees along the way. You know, longevity does not equate to competence. So I think opening the door in terms of diversity and particularly that player input, because aren't we supposed to be player-centric, athlete-centric, it's about the players, then we're going to hopefully generate greater diversity of thought. And therefore, and, that, and it's not necessarily comfortable. You know, these decision-making spaces are not necessarily comfortable because you're going to get different views. But ultimately, you will have covered all the possibilities before you reach a decision. So, wholly support this.
0: Yeah, I think you made a number of fantastic points there. I think Generally, uh, as a world, we're becoming more and more cognizant of the importance of diversity and we're all sort of learning about why, why it matters and, 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 and at the highest level, why it's even more important. But I think that latter point that you made about the, the role of players and involving them in the process is also crucially important. And it's something that perhaps rugby in the past has, has failed on, is putting players at the heart of the process. And I think that when a sport puts, puts its athletes at the heart of everything it does, it's only likely to be successful because th- th- they are the most vital stakeholders in in, in the sport and recognising their value and their importance is only going to do good things for the sport as a whole, particularly in a world where the brand and image of individuals and therefore the, the sort of growth on the athlete side of things is perhaps bigger than ever. Dan, was there anything you wanted to add on the diverse, diversity point?
1: No, I just i oh, listening to Amanda speak. It just you know, I just feel like I'm learning a lot as we're, as we're just sort of uh, sitting here. So um, you know, uh, I need to. I think we need to hire you as a consultant, Amanda, for Pacific. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've got you know um, we've got a lot of those issues that you mentioned. We can, we can identify. The Pacific Islands, uh, you know, when it comes to, to the diversity and diversity of thought, you know, it's, it's, it's still very much, you know, you, you get a, you have a voice when you've got the most grey hairs on your head, and that's that's the, um, you know, the, the, the hierarchy and the tradition of the culture, which makes it, you know, it's what makes us great. It what's makes us great rugby players because you know, if the coach or captain says jump, we ask how high. We don't question. We just get on and do it, but it can be to our detriment as well because you know our cultures. You know we don't ask questions. There is very little um, diversity of thought. It's just you know what the leader says goes. I think the more that we can do to challenge that uh, that, that that model, particularly. You know the, the world game, and, and and they set the example. Uh, world rugby, I think that filters down to the unions, and you know, can very much, you know, I think it's a great thing that these, you know, hopefully, are part of those, those criteria. So, you know, that we can, you know, start to fulfil that. You know, as, as Amanda touched on, sets uh, the base to taking the step up the levels. You know, diversity's got to be got to be one of them. Um, yeah, it's something we've got to um, start doing better.
0: It, it would also be good, I suppose, to see that being included in in perhaps the integrity code that's, that's going to be published soon, we hope, because filtering that level of diversity down, not just at world rugby level, but down through the unions and, and then through the sort of uh, club governing bodies and, and, and sort of lower levels of the game, I think is obviously important too. And certainly I can think of a few rugby institutions that would benefit from greater diversity and have, having sort of this forward thinking and modern approach to governance. So hopefully it's something that that will um, inspire further change. Now, one of the other big developments over the last 12 months, and not something that wasn't necessarily part of the governance review per se, but one that we discussed at length on our last podcast about um, rugby's governance, was the fairness of World Cup scheduling. And earlier this year, World Rugby suddenly announced, sort of out of the blue really, a significant departure from its previous stance that the 2023 World Cup would be extended by a week to allow all teams at least five days to prepare before each pool match uh, in the interest of protecting player welfare. What are the speaker's reactions to this change? And Dan, I'll perhaps come to you first.
1: My first reaction to that was was a little bit cynical. I, I was, it was one of the things that we really pushed for in the Valor Money Report, is you know, not based on player welfare, although that is a, obviously is, you know a, a big impact. But more on the you know on the fairness or the unfairness of the situation. You know, the fact that um, you know I, I played at World Cups where we had three day turnarounds and uh, Tier One uh, nations in our group had had all seven day turnarounds so that was more my my mindset and the fact that hey it got changed and it was ch- and they said it was because of player welfare hey at the end of the day change changes change and we got the, re- the result that we needed it's not about uh you know but yeah it's, it's i think it's great for, for in both both as and obviously player welfare has become you know a, a bigger and um, more important issue particularly over the last four or five years and i think this just builds on you know the way that um, we need to go as a sport in terms of you know, the concussion and, the, you know, and all of the, all of that discussion, you know, ar- around that. But for me, it was, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I was looking at it more from a, yeah, the way that the short turnarounds particularly were unfavourable Tier 2 nations more than Tier 1 nations and the way that that just didn't align with all of the, the values that we say are part of this game. You know, fairness, sportsmanship, were just, you know, um, so I'm so glad that uh, it's going to be more equal at the next World Cup.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, something that I know we, we were sort of quite, quite excited about at the time. Again, the devil's in the detail, because when, when you look at the the schedule for the 2023 World Cup, it's not entirely equal. So there is still some way to go. Tier, tier 1 nations, as we call them, still do have the more favourable rest periods. Tier 2 nations tend to have, have less rest on average. But it is obviously a massive step forward, the, the minimum of five days rest really is, is a departure from the, the previous system where particularly these tier two nations were getting such short turnarounds but, but for me it was somewhat telling that there'd been a change in 2019 where these short turnarounds were being distributed a bit more evenly and they were being pushed on to some of the tier one nations so they were having these three-day turnarounds in some instances and it's telling for me that when that started to happen and when perhaps being even more cynical when world rugby and the union started to be Sued for player welfare issues. Suddenly, action was taken to to make the system more even and to protect players better. When when this is something that the tier two nations and particularly the Pacific Islands have been calling for for decades since since at least two thousand and three. This has been this has been something that of, of huge concern to those nations. And so it's it's somewhat telling on the perhaps the perspective of, of, of you know the, the the governing unions, if I can call them that, given they hold so much power that it's you know only now when it truly affects them that it's something that's pushed through at the top of the agenda and that's particularly so because Pacific rugby welfare you know was told not that less than 3 weeks before this decision that it was simply impossible to change the rugby world cup schedule having made repeated calls for it to be changed to allow greater fairness it was told specifically that it was not possible and then suddenly it changed so it's quite a telling sort of little event in the history of of rugby's governance, I feel, although perhaps I'm being a bit too cynical. But nonetheless, I think we do have to recognise the positives that it brings for all all nations and particularly players. Amanda, did did you want to add something?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it could very easily pour over the rationale and exactly what is the catalyst for this and so on and so forth, and, and there will be different views on that. But to acknowledge intent... Uh, and the intent being getting closer to a, a fairer World Cup. But also, it's worth pointing out as well that the the Rugby World Cup 2021, which is due to be taking place just a few weeks ago, now will take place in 2022, was extended from 38 days in previous editions to 43 days. And I think it's quite interesting because, because in women's rugby, you don't the tiers are very different. Your top six nations include Canada and USA in 15-a-side rugby. So arguably the power structures, the negotiating that goes on behind the scenes might be slightly different there. But nonetheless, tournament has been extended by five days for next year and squads have been increased from 28 to 30. So in the women's edition, we already have decisions in light of player welfare, although I have to say it creates a different issue for some of those nations outside the top six where they have amateur players who are now being asked to take much more time off from work, caring responsibilities, education, maybe paid, maybe unpaid, or a podium or something whilst they're at the tournament, and also extending the squad, that feeds the top nations where they have much deeper talent pathways. Whereas for the smaller nations that probably rely quite heavily on a smaller number of players who so are going to play every single game Having a bigger squad may or may not help in terms of performance, but it could help in terms of player welfare. But if we take it from an intent perspective, it is a good thing.
0: Absolutely. I think we can all agree on that. So finally then, obviously it's been quite a big year in terms of governance for world rugby. There's been a number of changes. Obviously the reviews made a number of recommendations, some of which we're still waiting to see the, sort of the final outcome of, but certainly steps in the right direction. Are there any governance issues that that you'd have liked the review to address, which it hasn't? Dan, could I come to you?
1: Probably, we touched on it earlier, you know, this um, it's a a bit of a bugbear of mine. It's just uh, just the way that the finances and the international, non-World Cup matches uh, distributed or or aren't distributed is probably a a better word to use. Um, For me, um, it needs addressing, particularly if, you know, if we're going to capitalise on the, on the eligibility reforms that have just just been made and i said it earlier you know for a pacific team to come over and sell out you know help sell out a stadium when there's absolutely no return fixtures coming our way for us to be able to recoup- recuperate some of those, that uh you know um, reciprocal match gate takings is uh for me me needs looking at you know whether it, that's probably fits into the, the test schedule as well you know um at the moment, it seems that the tier one nations uh, that you know they just decide who who they want to play. So obviously, you know they, they play against each other because that's that's going to generate the most the most money. But uh, for me, that's probably something that I think was was missing. And, and, and also, this this concept you know the greater concept of the global calendar. I know it's been really difficult for them to to, to get alignment there. But for me, those are the probably you know they're all intertwined together. Towards making the sport fairer in terms of just the way that the you know um, revenue is generated and dispersed, which would have a massive impact on the sport from the from the ground up.
0: Absolutely agreed. And Amanda, what about you?
2: Just very briefly, probably no additional matters to, to pick up. But I'm very interested to see how some of these recommendations are in, implemented. What what is the detail? If we're looking at those five categories on high performance, mentorship, growth, development, etc., what does that mean? How are we going to measure? unions on their success in meeting the you know whatever the criteria might be, be within these five categories and then what does that subsequently mean just speaking to Dan's point in terms of world rugby investment and thereafter you know how do we encapsulate the entirety of the game from introducing youngsters to maybe a non-contact version and really spreading the the rugby gospel as it were right the way through to those nations who are challenging for Olympic medals and World Cup medals what does it mean in practice? How is that going to play out? And then further down the line, how does it influence long-term investment?
0: Absolutely right. And I think we can add sort of implementation of the integrity code to that, that list of things we'd like to keep an eye on. And a final point, if I may, is that one issue I'd perhaps like to have seen addressed and would like to see addressed going forward is, is this issue of voting rights on the World Rugby Council. And I know, Dan, that's sort of another one of your sort of top, top three things that you'd like to see happen. And I think that's that would be a massive one because at the moment it is very much weighted in favour of the of the traditionally powerful and successful unions, and that and that really doesn't encourage growth of the go- global game, in in my view. Obviously, there is value to be had in incentivising unions to to reach those targets that are needed to to get the third vote, if you like. But really, I think having a more equitable voting system would be better for the game as a whole, and hopefully that's something we'll, we'll see the next time. World Rugby's Governance is reviewed, if not before. Well, I suppose that's all we have time for today. Thank you both very much, Dan and Amanda, for giving us your time and for joining us and for for such an interesting discussion. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out our earlier episode on World Rugby's Governance with Dan Leo and Matt Tamua. And finally, please do connect with us on social media. I'm at Rugby and the Law on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find the firm at Morgan Sports Law on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook for articles, updates, and news. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon.